really makes the work so compelling is the sense of belonging that you get. It gave me, at least, like a new sense of confidence and a clearer sense of myself and my own worth. Welcome to Perennials, a podcast about growing up, getting wise, and trying to live a good life. I'm Victoria Russell, and today I'm talking to teen activist Ananya Singh. Ananya discovered her passion for activism nearly five years ago when she was 12 years old and attended the Youth Empowered Action Camp, a week-long activist summer camp. The experience not only showed her that young people can make a powerful impact, but inspired her to take action on pressing environmental issues, including the climate crisis. She began by talking to her friends and family, researching the issue, and speaking in front of her middle school peers. With some support from teachers, resources from organizations, and a supportive mentor, Ananya was able to turn that energy into a small activist group at her local library. Since then, she has made strides as a leader, expanded the scope of her work, and found an interest in thinking about the structures and systems that support youth leadership. She currently serves as the CEO of Greening Forward, a youth-led environmental organization, and partnerships coordinator for the New Jersey Student Sustainability Coalition. I loved talking to Ananya. She is wise beyond her years, and she's also super upbeat, passionate, and incredibly thoughtful about what it means to live a good life while trying to create a better world. I've heard Glennon Doyle suggest that in order to figure out what work we should be doing in the world, we should pay attention to what breaks our hearts. Ananya's story makes me think that it's equally important to follow our desires, to think about what we love the most, and how do we want to protect what we love, help it grow, expand it, create greater and greater freedom and justice around it. We don't all have to devote our entire lives to activism, but it's not an all-or-nothing game. We can learn from the activists around us and find the leaders we want to follow and support. We can look at our neighborhoods and our towns and think about what we'd like to learn about, who we'd like to meet, and what we might be able to contribute to help to make the places where we live more just, more peaceful and loving for everybody who lives there. Ananya is here with her story and with some really insightful strategies for overcoming barriers to action and learning where we can begin. Ananya, welcome to the podcast. So great to be on. So I'd like to know, like, what's a typical, like, I feel like day doesn't quite work, but a typical week in your life, like, what are the, what are the things that populate most of your days? Okay, so my week is really a mix of being a high school student and kind of not the most typical high school student because I go to Morris County School of Technology, which is a technical high school. And for our senior year, we're at community college. So I take all my classes at County College in Morris, which is like very interesting and a very different schedule. So I have Fridays off, uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays. I get out at 11 in the morning. So it's kind of very great in terms of flexibility in my schedule. So that's part of it. Then there's um, in this phase of my life in the fall, I've been working on college apps, which is another significant chunk of the week. Um, And then I have Greening Forward, which is um, the youth-led nonprofit organization that I my position is the chief executive officer, which always sounds like a very um, hefty title. <laughs> um, and then beyond that, I kind of do work with a few different other organizations in various capacities. So one, uh, I am the partnerships coordinator of the New Jersey Student Sustainability Coalition, um, and I am also 
um, involved on doing an internship with the Mount Olive Democrats. Wow, you're busy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And involved. (laughs) Mm -hmm. How did you come to a life in activism at such a young age? Did you have a pull to this from childhood? Did you have any adults in your life who were kind of inspirational to you? How did you come to this? Uh, That's a great question. So I, when I would say the, it was really, for me, it was a very clear turning point moment where before this moment, I was not an activist and I did not know what an activist even was. And then after this moment, my life was defined by activism. Um, in When I was 12 years old, uh, summer before eighth grade, I attended this summer camp called Youth Empowered Action. Uh, and this is a camp for like teen activists. And it really, it was a life-changing experience for me. Um, It exposes you to like so many different social issues that are going on in the world and kind of um, takes the approach of like intersectionality and showing how all of our, these issues are so interconnected and then really breaking down what is possible for young people to do um, and then giving them really the confidence, the community, Um, the courage and also the tangible skills and the knowledge to really implement these things. And so Yay Camp has been a really special part of my life um, since that moment. And that was really a spark for me. And then I went home and I was just so fired up because it was something that resonated with me so clearly. Um, And I would say before this moment, my life wasn't really defined by any particular passion. I was kind of a creative type of person and I was into dance and uh, design and different various like creative things, but it wasn't necessarily like a very big part of my life. Like some people have like a particular affinity for sports or for a talent for dancing or a talent for music. Like it wasn't that, like it wasn't my thing I would say. And then I went to Yankee and I was like, this is my thing. Um, so that really just permeated and it stuck with me and it had like the staying power because my experience when I went back home was so affirming and I met so many people who really validated that desire in myself to be an activist. So who actually brought you to that camp? Did you find out about it and say, and did you have an inkling like, oh, I think I might enjoy that? Was there a teacher or parent or someone who said, I think you should do this camp? I think it was honestly a stroke of luck. Um, It was me looking online for something to do in the summer because uh, this is kind of a funny story. I got rejected from the competition dance team. So I I had this like vision of my summer where I was going to be dancing and going to competitions. Um, And then I was just like looking for something to do to fill that time. And uh, some random website had the link and I saw it and I read the website and it was like, there were all these questions that were posed, like, do you see yourself um, changing the world, trying to make the world a bigger place, a better place? Uh, Do you care about things that other people might not care about? And it was just like, okay, yeah, yeah. Um, And I didn't know, like, it, it kind of blew my mind that this place existed. And it was just something about it that resonated with me and made me so excited and want to go. I love a good story of one door closing and another one opening. Right. (laughs) I love that so often I feel like people share these stories of, oh, I had this plan. It didn't go according to plan. I was told no, you know, um, 
I thought I was failing at something else or I thought I was being rejected from something else. And then I got on this other path and this is really what I'm like super fired up about now. I'm just really, really grateful. I would say like to have had that opportunity so early in my life uh, and it really came at the right time at the right place. Um, I was very lucky to be able to go and to um, surround myself with the right people and then also have that kind of um, continued sense of support. Um, so I'd say in that sense, it's just like, I'm so grateful for having everything that I have and for that opportunity to open. Yeah. I'm curious to know what kept that fire going for you more Mm -hmm. specifically, because I think there are so many of us who we have some sort of peak experience and we're like, Oh, that was amazing. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, Oh, I had this great experience in meditation I'm totally gonna meditate every day for the rest of my life and then like uh, five days later like we've stopped and we're done and like, mm-hmm. we, our, our life has gone back to how it was before what do you think has kind of helped you keep that fire going Oh my gosh, that is such a good point because so often we blame ourselves for that but um I'm kind of like I think a lot about um, the way people are pressured to do it all themselves and like how individualist our Mm, culture is. Um, So it's definitely not a story of like Ananya, the amazing, incredible, like, (laughs) um, like genius, like was just amazing at activism from the day she stepped at Yay Camp. So I went home and I spent a week watching documentaries, like every documentary I could find about like environmental issues or factory farming or like, I don't know, different um, social issues. And then I researched all the organizations I could find that they gave us these like lists of different organizations. And I signed myself up for every single email list uh, because I'm just a thorough type of person. So I I need to get all the information at once. And then by some reason, uh, by some chance, again, um, I got a call from someone from Greenpeace and they're like, do you want to do this campaign? Do you want to be coached? And I was like, yes, that sounds great. Um, and the campaign sounded really interesting. It was the climate ribbon campaign, um, to kind of work mobilized, um, to kind of generate awareness about the plant, the Paris climate conference that was going on. Um, and so, that was sounded like a really cool opportunity to me. And it also seemed very doable. It was like, okay, I can do like climate ribbons um, at my school. um, And it was that having that kind of coaching relationship, that was like a huge sense of accountability. Um, And it was like that little bit of structure that I needed to keep me going. And then I went into my school and I had a teacher who was um, an incredible supporter and a mentor. So it's kind of, so having that, um, the accountability from the coach um, and that commitment to an organization and the commitment to a specific campaign that was achievable in its scope, as well as having those um, key figures of people who are there to support me. That's really helpful. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. That idea of you don't just go from brand new to activism to being the CEO of Mm -hmm. a nonprofit overnight. You start on the ground floor, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Absolutely. You start with something small. You start, um, you don't start alone. I think starting alone is really intimidating. And I feel like that is why like so many people don't start is because it like alone, things are so overwhelming, but even just having a conversation with someone about your ideas. Uh, I mean, for me, that's a huge sense of like clarity. Um, when it, when you 
put things out of yourself. And that was really helpful. And I think uh, another thing that goes with that is that that's kind of what I try to see my role as today is I can kind of help people with that step of like accountability um, and create really creating space for people to grow into themselves. Um, And I definitely I've done like coaching now that I'm on this side of things. And I know that um, what's helpful is not me being the perfect coach or having all the experience, but it's really just being that person who's there to check in and there to tell people that they can do this and uh, there to remind people that everyone started somewhere. Yeah, it makes me think about when I worked in writing centers at colleges and universities, like my job as the tutor wasn't to give someone all of the right answers or to have Mm -hmm. every single answer in my head. But when someone had a question to say, even if I didn't know the answer, I could say, I don't know, but I know where we can find out. So let's Mm -hmm. go to that resource together. Like Mm -hmm. modeling being, modeling just being a student, (laughs) you know, like you're not always going to know the answer. So, so what do you do? We can go to the dictionary. We can go to a database online. We can go ask a professor. Um, And I think that's really helpful to keep in mind. Mm -hmm, Definitely. And it kind of shows me the power of a coach uh, because I experienced it for myself. So um, it's why I love doing the work that I do now because I really see myself in the people that we work with. And I'm curious to know what it was about the environment in particular that called to you because it sounds like you were learning about a lot of different social issues. And like you said, I mean, the thing about the environment is that it touches on every other type of social issue, right? Like mm-hmm. um, it, it's all intersectional, but what was it about the environment that made you kind of land there as opposed mm-hmm. to a, a, an organization with a different focus? Mm-hmm. Uh, environmentalism is an issue that is kind of very accessible as a starting place for so many different people because it's something that you can do no matter what your personal identity is. Um, and you don't necessarily need to have this great narrative of why you are inspired to be an environmentalist. Um, It's kind of like, in general, I think that's something that most people uh, can get behind is that like, we should take care of our environment and we are not right now. So that's kind of a, and on a basic level, it's uh, one of the most accessible issues I find. Mm. Uh, The other thing is, I kind of didn't feel a particular connection to any of these other issues. I know that like, yeah, a lot of the reason that why people become motivated to do activism is they have some sort of connection where they witness something happening or they hear about something specific that resonates to them. There's some sort of moment that sparks them or something that they experience in their own lives uh, that leads them to activism. And for me, there wasn't one clear thing that I could pick out, but I knew that like there was so much work to be done with environmentalism and there's kind of a particular urgency around environmentalism um so that's why I kind of stuck with it and it is really interesting how like you're saying every human being lives on this planet and is affected Mm by air quality water quality things like that I mean to varying degrees depending on where you are and how many how much resources you have but ultimately we are all vulnerable and it is so interesting how you can actually get into other, you inevitably will get into other challenges and issues and forms of suffering and injustice 
because it's all like it's all bound up in all of mm-hmm. our systems and our economic systems right in our in in race in class in mm-hmm. all of this stuff do you For find sure. um how has your relationship to those things kind of like changed or developed over time your understanding of all these different systems that are implicated and your feeling of connection or involvement in those systems Mm -hmm. Um, I think it kind of is a continual process I think when I was at this camp uh, we do a workshop about intersectionality where everyone stands in a circle and you're holding everyone holds a different issue um, as like a kind of a card and there's a ball of yarn that gets tossed around and it literally you visibly make those connections with yarn and string uh, and you get this web um, in the middle and that was really fascinating uh, experience for me, as well as doing a work- workshops about power and privilege, um, which really showcase um, how oppression is kind of a repeated system that touches upon different, um, like, there are different identities that are oppressed, uh, but the patterns that are going on are like the similar, are very similar thing that is happening. Um, So I think that kind of foundation um, has been with me since the start. And I think as I've kind of navigated the environmental space, I think I've found places that resonate with that sense of justice and like doing work that aligns around environmental justice and climate justice that specifically frames environmental work in that context. Um, And I've also navigated spaces where environmentalism has led me to like kind of more, I would say people who are more focused on conservation and preservation Mm -hmm. and we need to protect the earth and things like that. And I find that those are kind of spaces that have not had, that are not centered in justice Justice. and oppression. Um, Those are spaces that are mostly inhabited by very privileged people who have had the ability to kind of step away and the and most of the people who have our work on that side of activism um don't necessarily align themselves with the label of activist um and they also more often have kind of this narrative this personal narrative of like a nature connection uh like I was so inspired by this beauty in nature and I like wasn't super inspired by like going to the ocean and surfing and then seeing plastic or I was hiking and I saw this um, and having that kind of access to nature all around you. That's such a privileged thing. Um, and so, that, yeah, those kind of, those are kind of like they're kind of two separate ish worlds that can look very similar from someone who is just trying to get started and do something good in the world. Um but when you look deeper about the root causes and who are the people who are doing those different types of work, um, you kind of see where their values differ and where their narratives differ. Uh, but I think what's kind of interesting is how um, there is kind of that conversation happening today where those big green groups and the conservation side of people, they're seeing the leadership of environmental justice leaders and they're seeing the leadership of young people who are working and who are demanding for climate justice. Um, and some, and there's a lot of ways play areas where that tension kind of is playing out right now, real time. Um, and there's a lot of ways, like I see it as like kind of something that's going to emerge 
Um, and I think what's kind of interesting is now that like we have things like the climate strikes and the Green New Deal and Southernized Movement. And these are people who've actually been very effective in changing the type of conversation that we're having around climate change. Um, I think those are the people that are defining our conversation and are framing this issue as a justice issue. So I think um, that's becoming more and more relevant every day. Yeah, that's so fascinating because like you're saying, someone who wants to preserve a beautiful space and maybe has a very personal connection to it, like this is where I love to watch the sunset, so I want to save it and protect it and preserve Mm -hmm. it. That's a, a different, that's a very different thing from maybe a mother in a city where the air pollution's so bad that all of the ki- practically all of the kids have asthma, right? And mm-hmm. they're just they're trying to say I'm trying to save my child. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's such a fascinating thing to articulate that they're even within this realm of people who care about the environment, right? There's mm-hmm. so many different motivations and different perspectives and and I could see I'm sure, you know, there's also like race plays into all of that too. Like Oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. um it's really fascinating. And the way that you explained that was so helpful. So thank yeah. you. <laughs> and I also think um I kind of framed it almost as um uh like a dichotomy, like it's either this or it's that. But I think in reality it's most more of a spectrum. Um and where different people are, or not even a spectrum, it's not necessarily a linear thing, but it's kind of um, different, like, yeah, it's just, like, so varying, and, but I think that it's not necessarily locked in, Um, so I don't think one person who starts by caring about nature, I don't think that limits them from caring about justice, Um, and I think that a lot of people are moving that direction, because when you start to when, I think everyone just needs a bridge um, that brings them into the world. And once you're in the world, it's like, wow, there's this and that and this and that. Um, and you can really grow and change as a person. Yeah, because there's nothing wrong with your bridge being, I want to be able to watch sunsets here. And I want other people, friends and my kids and my grandkids to be able to watch sunsets here. Right? Exactly. Like, there's nothing yeah. wrong with that. But there just also has to be awareness and acknowledgement and partnership with people who are like, I'm fighting for my life right now. I'm fighting for my mm-hmm. kids' lives right now. Right? Absolutely. And I think what's really important is once you get that, um, so once you start to get a, a systemic analysis and once you start to recognize the like the power systems that are at play, I think that's kind of a very important moment because then you start to recognize your own place within the movement. Um, and I think as long as people who are inhabiting that space of wanting to conserve and protect um, and protect nature, I think as long as you understand that you are in a privileged position to be able to do your activism focused on that rather than um, fighting for your life. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that as long as you have that understanding, I think then um, you can still leverage that narrative of yours right. um, to connect to other people. In a responsible way, right? Exactly. Yeah. How did you come to Greening Forward and how did you become the CEO of Greening Forward? Yeah, for sure. Uh, this is also a great question because I met the uh, so Mike, one of my counselors at Yay Camp, that first session, uh, his name was Charles Orgbon, and he was the founder of Greening Forward. And he started this group when he was 12 years old and his kind of motivation was 
focus on school beautification in a school in Atlanta, and he started this website called Recycling Education, and it really grew and took off, and this was in 2008 when Greening Forward was established, Um, and then I met him in 2015 when it was kind of really growing into itself, Um, and then I got to attend a conference that Greening Forward put on in New York City, and really just experience it. And then we kind of lost a little bit of touch. Um, And then more recently, uh, I think, yeah, last spring, I reconnected with Charles again. And he told he connected me with the second CEO of the organization. um, Who in that and then I spoke to the second CEO, uh, or I don't know, this is kind of confusing. His name was Robert. Um, So I spoke to Robert then, and Robert was like, invited me to speak at their conference last spring. And uh, during the time that we were preparing for the conference, Robert told me that he was looking to step out of leadership and is looking to find someone else um, and that I should consider either applying or sharing with people in my network. Um, and then I read the the application for being the CEO, uh, not really expecting much, but it was kind of it has things like you have to do thought leadership and connect to um, like other leaders in the field, you have to do strategic direction and planning for your strategy. You get to do uh, leadership management and supporting uh, young, like our staff members and volunteers in like developing their skills and partnership work and programs and things like that. And I was like, that, that I love those things. Um, and uh, especially the thing that really got to me was the part about like being able to set the vision of the organization uh, and. Yeah, so that was really, it was like, that sounds amazing. Um, and it also was so perfect because Greening Forward exists at kind of this intersection between the worlds of youth leadership development and youth voice and environmental work and climate work. And I've kind of been playing in both of those like arenas before that, um, including like work specific to youth leadership and work specific to environmentalism that did not involve like youth voice and then this was kind of connection of both in a role that really excites me um and I was like that I need like I need to apply um and the funny thing was I actually told everyone I'm just gonna apply just to see if I get in um I'm not gonna take it I'm already too busy like um it it would be too stressful but I just want to see um and then when I found out that I was their top choice I was like how can I say no to this now? Um, which is always a challenge for me learning how to say no and uh, learning how to narrow in. But I, I kind of, when I was doing my analysis of like, here are the things that I'm doing now um, and what do I have to give up in order to take on this opportunity? It kind of became clear to me that this was something like so encompassing with so much potential. Um, and it also kind of gave me a sense of validity. Like, wow, I've done enough to kind of gain this position that really validates my sense of leadership um and it also gives me like a very clear platform and it also kind of gives me the sense that I am doing enough this seems like a position with enough weight to kind of um like ease that sense of what can I do what more can I do I'm not doing enough um uh, and I think when I looked at the list of all the things that I was doing last year before I joined Greening Forward it was a lot longer of a list um but the roles that I was playing were a lot less in depth. Um, mm-hmm. So that was kind of the trade-off that I had to make because I did have to re- like 
cut off some of the commitments that I had, uh, but it opened up this amazing opportunity. And I'm so glad that I've done that because um, I've really gotten to go deep into this organization and it's been the most wonderful process. So what's something that you find really challenging about the role and what's something that you really, really enjoy about the role? Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are two things that I find very challenging. Uh, the first is always having to have the framework of fundraising. That is a major mm-hmm. part of the role. Um, and I don't know if there are people out there that particularly really enjoy fundraising, um, but it's not something that I enjoy a lot. Um, so that is kind of a little bit of a stressful thing, being a, being like kind of in charge of managing the budget um, and knowing that that weight is kind of on me to keep the organization alive um, with, with enough funding to do what we want to do. So that was like, that is, fundraising is daunting um, and not a lot of fun. And it kind of brings up a lot of very interesting, like, um, contradictions to me, um, which um, I don't know, like, how much I should get into this, but, like, Granny Forward kind of used to exist in this space of philanthropy and, like, public service. Um, And it's kind of a weird world very closely tied to like corporate giving and like foundations and things like that. Um, And it brings, it, it brings up a lot of really interesting questions like um, how organizations like Coca-Cola are funding like plastic pollution activism. Right. And it's like, like how mind blowing is that, (laughs) that that exists. Um, and how like these oil and gas companies really try to fund environmental work as kind of a cover for their um, really horrible <laughs> uh, like business model. Right. Um, and so that is a part that does not exactly sit right with me, like existing in that space. But it's also um, a way to, it's like also I get to have conversations with people about that. And I've been talking to other people who are in the nonprofit space about this really interesting contradiction um exists and um there's a really great um writer and author uh who writes about this um and his name is uh, i don't know if i'm saying this correctly but anand jiridaradas um and he wrote this book called winner takes all the elite charade of changing the world um and it talks about kind of um the way this came about was he made a speech at the aspen institute which is kind of Uh, one of these hubs of like people who are kind of doing social good type of work, uh, but who also are very deeply connected to these corporate systems. Um, And he talked about kind of what is the Aspen consensus. These are the things that you do talk about in when you talk about like changing the world and doing good. And these are the things that you don't talk about. And it's all about how can we do good, but it's not about how can we do less harm. Mm. Um, And so I think that, having this platform of being kind of a bridge between these two worlds or not even necessarily a bridge. I'm very firmly in the youth activist, like nonprofit world, but kind of having to make those connections um, is very interesting to me. Yeah. It is so fascinating. Cause I, I do work for a nonprofit that's actually a special program of a foundation. And so mm-hmm. over the past few years, I've been learning more about the financial side of that. And it is just so interesting like, p- 
all these people working for a nonprofit or for a foundation who want to do good and also where's the money coming from where did it come from originally Mm -hmm. right like families whose money came from oil you know Mm -hmm. then that money is then going to a foundation that does environmental work or you know I know that more foundations are starting to try to divest from you know they're trying to take their their business out of any investment firms that invest in fossil fuels Mm -hmm. um and and they're trying to do more socially responsible investing but it's like it's it's definitely complicated as someone especially being like a young person with a lot of ideals and like a big passion to try to change the world for the better and then being like oh wow all of these systems again are so bound up in each other and Mm -hmm. and it's like you almost want I know for me there have been times I'm like I just I don't want to I don't want to be involved in any of that stuff I just want to like do the good work but (laughs) but that's the system that you're in like you can't just turn a blind eye to it right like you have to Mm -hmm. understand it yeah I think what actually like that kind of excites me because of the position that I'm in I'm, I'm still like uh, several years away from having to make a decision about like my career um and I'm also like just imagining all the possibilities and what kind of really is exciting to me is um existing at a time where people are kind of having conversations and people are questioning things and it's resonating with people um across the board and so you can be a little bit more courageous and you can put these ideas out there and you can challenge the way the systems are set up because I don't have any stake in the system um like I have no like intention to um yeah, I don't have relationships. I don't have like personal connections. Um, yeah, I have no stake in the systems um, of like the corporate world or the nonprofit world or the philanthropy world. So I can kind of look at them from the outside and like have this kind of not even un- not unbiased. I'm biased towards like wanting to live, um, <laughs> but yeah. I'm not necessarily like, you know, you can't. I, if I speak up as a young person looking at these systems and saying, like, this is a very big problem that I can see as a 16-year-old, um, then you kind of have this sense of, um, like, moral clarity um, and this window of opportunity to kind of call people out. Not call people out, but really point out the contradictions and do some systemic work of, like, really ch- uh, changing paradigms and changing systems. So is that... I, I think I had started by asking like what's most challenging and what's your what's your favorite part or something you really enjoy is does that kind of answer that question of like the part that you enjoy the most about it? Um, it somewhat does. So um, I would say the other thing that is kind of challenging is um, having to like as a leader, you need to be very comfortable with the skill of confrontation. Mm. Um, <laughs> and for me, that is difficult because um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I can't like pinpoint exactly why I have such a difficult time confronting people. Um, but like, it, I don't know, the way I've been socialized, um, I've always, like, you know, I'm a nice person. Um, and so that is uh, always a challenge. Um, and not just confronting people within the organization or people that we work with, but like, um, having like very, like having direct conversation, um, and dealing with conflict with like, uh, between organizations and with partners and stuff like that. Um, so that's just like, 
ooh, it's a little bit of messy territory, but I'm the kind of person that really likes to learn and challenge myself. So I look at these things that are kind of like, mm, like these do not excite me right now. Um, and I kind of dread them sometimes, um, but they're also like things to overcome. Mm. Um, so great yeah. learning opportunities. I think like that's something that's come up in the podcast before the, mm-hmm. actually just in the most recent episode, the psychology mm-hmm. of Harry Potter. Um mm. I talked to a professor from Drew University who teaches a course called The Psychology of Harry Potter, and it was so much fun. And (laughs) we talked a little bit about, you know, how niceness is not a trait, it's a behavior. And, you know, I was saying how I feel like as a growing up, as a girl, like girls are definitely really socialized to be nice. And um, she was saying, but, you know, like, psychopaths are often nice to people when they want to when they want to lure them in you know like yeah Mm -hmm. being nice is not necessarily um the same thing as like being kind or doing the right thing or having integrity and so I try I mean this is something that is really hard for me that I'm still like very actively learning about and I'm just Mm -hmm. trying to really push myself to be like okay but like, what do I think is the right thing to do right now? You know, mm-hmm. and it's hard. It's definitely really yeah. hard. <laughs> definitely. And I think, so I think a lot, I do a lot of thinking about values, um, personal values, um, organizational values, um, how values show up in other places. And I, start, I like, I have this idea of like what my own values are. And I would make the list, these lists of like, these are all my values. Um, but then you look at them and you realize when values come into contradiction with each other, what do you choose? Um, and I think a lot of times I see the contradiction between wanting to say that I really value authenticity and vulnerability and honesty, but then also saying that, but I also really value like kindness and treating people with respect and compassion mm-hmm. um, and empathy. And sometimes those do come into contradiction with each other. Often they do. And I think my dominant instinct is to go with the empathy and to go with the kindness right. um, and to go with the compassion and kind of um, give people a, like an easy response. But I'm recognizing more and more that um, is that what is – like what do I really um, want to embody in the world? And I don't want to embody like – empathizing, uh, prioritizing just empathy and compassion when it comes to uh, things that are very important and you need to be authentic and you need to have an honest conversation. Yeah, I think that's really fascinating. It's something I think about a lot too. Like mm-hmm. what are the what what are the boundaries of empathy? What what is the most truly compassionate thing to do? Mm-hmm. And Yeah, it's definitely a negotiation. It's not super black and white. And I'm curious to hear, like, where do you find that you're the values that you that you hold very strongly now? Can you pinpoint where they came from? Are there certain figures Mm -hmm. in your life or certain books that you read or, you know, certain things, certain influences that really instilled those values Mm -hmm. in you? Definitely. Okay, so there's one example I can say for sure. I think growing up with immigrant parents, that's a major motivator. Um, And really hearing their lived experiences, um, which are so different from mine. And I think so many people with um, like immigrant parents um, have this similar experience of 
like having a more um, having more perspective and more gratitude uh, about the things that are in our lives. Um, so I think that has really instilled in me this sense of kind of never taking things for granted, um, being grateful, um, trying to really appreciate what you have. Um, and that was a very big motivator for me to kind of step into the world of activism because I felt so such a responsibility um, that like I have so much um, here in my little privileged life in Morris County um, and I can afford to give up a little bit of my comfort to do something better for the world. Um, Cause I had that perspective. Like there's so many people who don't have what I have and what I take for granted every day. So that was one thing that stood out to me in terms of value development. Um, I would say another thing has been like now that I've gotten deeper into the world of social movements and all these things, um, I think a lot about equity um, as a value. And I don't know if equity counts as a value. It's more of a concept. And the value driving that is kind of justice. But um, I've I've kind of been challenged to like reckon with what do I really believe the world should be. Um, and I think that the world should be a place um, where, you know, we have equity and people are not necessarily just treated the same, but people are recognized for who they are and what they need and um, how history has shaped that. I'm always curious about people who are have a lot of who work really hard for social justice and who are involved in activism, I feel like I'm always curious if there's any sort of spiritual component to their perspective on the work. And I mean that Mm -hmm. in a very broad sense. Um, I'm curious if there's a spiritual component to, to your sense of the work. Yeah. I think um, I, I, I definitely have not like articulated or like really developed my um, philosophy on like, what that what what spirituality means for me yet um but I do think that element is definitely there and I was just thinking about um something that really makes the work so compelling is the sense of belonging that you get and a sense of purpose um and meaning and those are very very important um and I think that sense of belonging is very powerful um because especially when you grow up and you're kind of in a lot of different spaces and situations where you maybe fit in a little bit, but not like wholeheartedly. And then you enter a space where you feel so welcomed and so at home um, and you really feel like you belong. That experience um, shows you, it gives you, it gave me at least like a new sense of confidence and um, a a clear sense of myself um and my own worth and and that's something that you want to have around you and I think activist communities can be very powerful in that you get recognized um and you are seen for who you are um and I think that means a lot Yakip is like the most at home I had ever felt. Um, it was the first time that I was away from home, actually, um, on my own. And it was kind of like me defining myself for who I was um, and not just what other people told me I was. It was kind of me defining myself 
uh, rather than just being defined by the expectations and assumptions of all these people who had seen me grow up. Um, and so I just, I showed up as the most authentic, authentic version of myself. Um, and people, you know, I was just, um, welcomed and it was, I don't even know how to put this into words, but you just feel, um, like a part of something so much bigger than yourself. I I was so inspired by the speech that you gave at the climate strike rally in Morristown. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. where you talked about all of the different kind of obstacles to taking action and what are the antidotes to those. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. was wondering, like, I know that was a whole speech, but I'm curious if you could talk a bit about, like, take some time to talk about those obstacles to action and how we can respond to those when they come up in mm-hmm. ourselves. Because I think that was just very inspiring and very helpful. Um, Okay, so there is this series of five main barriers to change, and this was a framework developed uh, by Marshall Gans, who was a a Dr. Marshall Gans. He was, um, I think he was a professor at Harvard University. He's a very foundational thinker in terms of social movement theory. Uh, So he has this list of five different barriers of action, uh, and those barriers are apathy, inertia, isolation, self-doubt, and fear. And I learned of these from the Sunrise Movement, um, and they have a training about public narrative and how to tell your story. And when you're telling your story, um, these actions kind of, uh, you, you can kind of think about these different barriers and try to address them in your story, in the story that you're telling. So to address apathy, um, the antidote to that is tapping into people's sense of anger uh, and really getting to um, the like the depth of like what is happening around us um, and recognizing that apathy can happen because these problems are so big and apocalyptic and kind of vague and they kind of just are so broad that it's easy to just feel numb and deny it as like a way to cope. So it's not that people are apathetic because they don't care. It's because they don't know how to care in a way that is meaningful. Uh, So they shut it off. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think um, so tapping into that sense of anger and outrage that people have, uh, but doing it also in a compassionate way. So talking, uh, framing it in the terms of, we love this. We care about this. You, uh, we are, um, yeah, you, if you love this, then you should be angry because it is at stake. Um, and that's kind of the framing. It makes me think about what we were saying about being nice and fearing confrontation and how when you're socialized to be nice, and I think, again, especially for girls growing up, you're also often socialized to not be angry or not express anger. And mm-hmm. so I feel like there's a really good book called The Dance of Anger by Harriet Mm -hmm. Lerner and Mm -hmm. it's all about um kind of trying helping women to accept their own anger and then learn Mm -hmm. how to work with it rather than just try to deny it or repress it and seeing how it can be like there is such thing in so many again like spiritual and religious texts there is such a thing as like righteous Mm -hmm. anger right (laughs) and um Mm -hmm. and that fuels justice or our, our, our it fuels us seeking justice yeah. Uh, so the second one is inertia, which is a very um, 
fun one because um, it's kind of based in like physics almost in a way. Um, so the idea, the idea behind this barrier is because like change is so difficult. Um, it's so easy to just fall back into habit and especially in a world of attention overload where there's so many things trying to pull you in different directions. Um, it's like easy to just stay where you are out of that inertia. But I think what is the way to frame this um, is with urgency. That's kind of the antidote to inertia. And the framing of this um, when it comes to climate and environmental work is that, you know, and, and even in other things, like change is going to come whether we like it or whether we do not. So we need to be the ones that are getting ahead of that change and creating that change intentionally so that like while we still have this window to act and create change in the world. Uh, and it's so like, there's so many ways to um, tap into that sense of urgency when it comes to different issues. But yeah, that's number two. Um, the third one is isolation. And that one is definitely a very big one as well uh, because it is so easy to feel small and alone and very powerless in the face of these urgent um very unjust situations and you feel if you feel isolated and you feel alone then um action doesn't feel possible and you don't have a vision um and it doesn't feel sustaining and nourishing and exciting but it can be that way um and the antidote to that is really standing in solidarity creating spaces where people belong as who they are and creating community around um, activism and action. So we need to act in solidarity with other people and other fights that we see happening around us. But we also need to accept um, that we are part of something bigger um, and really uh, join into that sense of community. Um, and so that really ties very closely into number four, which is self-doubt. And self-doubt is um, a, a very big um, thing. So like once you get over the apathy and once you get over the inertia and you get over the isolation, uh, then it can feel like there are so many people who are more qualified than me to do this. Why, why me? Um, what am I going to be able to do? And the way we really... Uh, take action on that is by empowering each other and believing in each other and being that coach that helps someone along and helps them find their first steps and stumble through the beginning of it but really showing people that their particular set of skills and their passions and their voice um, does have a role and it does have a, um, a position in this movement and so yeah really empowering other people and using empowering language uh, is a really great way to frame different things. So when you're and, feeling doubting, when when you're doubting yourself, instead of focusing on yourself, you turn your attention outward to other people and your belief mm -hmm. in them. Yeah, because um, we are all so much more alike than we are different. I really like see that because I see myself in other people who I am supporting. So I think... Uh, when I'm personally self-doubtful, um, that's a really great way, an easy way to kind of feel more confident again is to kind of remind yourself of where you were a few years ago 
um, and how much of a difference you can make to someone like that. You know what I love about that too is I feel like we live in a very competitive society and Mm -hmm. it's so easy to compare yourself to other people, especially now with like social media and all of that. Mm -hmm. It's so easy to be in a competitive and comparing mindset and to forget that someone else's success or achievement or strength or gift is our own too. Mm -hmm. We benefit from that as well, right? Yeah. And I'm the worst um, guilty victim of self-doubt. I'm like a, a, the biggest internal critic of myself. Um, and I think on one hand, having like validation from other people, I try to remind myself um, of all the great things that people do say about me. Um, I have to remind myself all the time because it's so easy to fall into uh, like doubting yourself. I also have a wall on my um in my room where um, at Yay Camp we do this activity of appreciation posters where people will write just like really positive things about you throughout the week and it's kind of just like this wall and it's like these five rainbow posters with all these like beautiful comments um, these really like meaningful uh, connections that I have with people Um, and so when I'm doubtful I look at that and just remind myself that like yeah I just remind myself that like that was real. Um, and just because they're not here now, um, those people aren't like telling me that to my face. Like they really believed it. Um, Mm. yeah. That's beautiful. And it's surprising to me to hear you say that you have self doubt because you've done so much. It's that's, it just goes to show like, we really never know what someone's Mm -hmm. internal journey is. Yeah. And, um, self-doubt is like so pervasive and also, um, it never stops. You never get to a point where you're like, Oh, I'm satisfied now. Like I never got like became the CEO and I was like, okay, I've done it. I made it. Um, you never like, there's always something, someone bigger to compare yourself to. There is another bigger youth led organizations than mine. You know, there are younger CEOs for that matter. Um, so it's not about winning uh, any of those competitions because you're never going to win. The so, finish line can always move further. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I think what's also important is gratitude um, and like really reflecting on your place and giving yourself perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, the fifth uh, like kind of barrier to change presented by Gans was fear. And the antidote to this was courage and hope. Um, and I find hope to be an interesting phrase, uh, especially like the way that Sunrise Movement framed it was really about hope and having a vision. Um, but I think I have reflected a little bit more about this, um, about like that terminology of hope. Uh, and I think it was kind of interesting because Greta Thunberg in her speeches, she talks about we cannot be hopeful in this moment. Um, we hope will not save us. That's her quote. Hope will not save us. Our house is burning. Uh, but I really have been thinking about that. And I've also been reflecting on um, Rebecca Solnit has this great book about hope. Um, it's called Hope in the Dark. And I haven't read it, but I've read parts of it. And I've heard of the essence of the book. And it's kind of very interesting, all the different um like approaches or outlooks to hope. Um, there's also this really great um, writer, Joanna Macy, and she has this uh, philosophy of active hope. Um, and so I think hope in itself as a phrase has a lot of just like connotations and it's been 
um, I don't know if necessarily taps into like the whole essence of what it takes to conquer fear. Like it can uh, be passive, it, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really do align myself with the idea of active hope and um, courageous hope and visionary hope and really clearly seeing that uh, brighter future that is ahead of you. Uh, and I think you do need that vision of the future to find a little bit of hope. Um, and I think um, how we message things has to be a little bit hopeful, but I think that we run the risk of sometimes, I mean, I know that um, like this has happened before where environmental work is framed as like all about hope and it's too hopeful. Um, it's just this kind of like strange contradiction. Yeah, I think it's really tricky because actually like when I when I reflect on the barriers and the and the antidotes that you just described, I think the trickiest one also, I mean maybe in addition to the hope piece is that urgency piece because mm-hmm. so many people feel urgency but then don't know what to do, like just freak out, you know, mm-hmm. like yeah. are just overcome by panic or anxiety. Um, in response to that sense of urgency and it's a tricky one right like it's tricky to find that balance of of urgency and hope mm-hmm. and so when it comes to like incorporating all of these things having a case for your action action uh that in a narrative that encompasses the anger the urgency the solidarity the empowerment and the courage and hope I think um kind of the balance there is kind of mostly on solidarity, empowerment, courage, hope, vision, things like that, with the anger and urgency as kind of the driving forces that lead you into the conversation. Mm. And I think right now, I don't think we have any shortage of anger and urgency. I think that's very clear uh, when it comes to climate. I think most people do feel it. So it's more about making the case for the more positive things sometimes without losing the integrity of the negative things. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. I'm curious because I think it is so easy for people to fall into despair about, Mm -hmm. especially Mm -hmm. when it comes to the climate and environmental factors. Like Mm -hmm. what, what do you ever feel that despair? And when you do, what do you do next? Oh my gosh, 100%. Um, like when you look at the UN climate reports, um, and they tell that it's when you look at any science um, at all, I feel a sense of terror and so much fear. And I think I definitely uh, try, I know that. Um, so I try to not, um, not experience that as much. Um, and I would say, um, that climate grief is very real and eco-psychology is very fascinating to me as well um, as a kind of the topic of how uh, especially young people today are experiencing these really high levels of anxiety and depression around climate and our ecological crisis. Um, so I'd say first validate your feelings and like really know that your feelings are real and not isolated and that so many people are going through that. Um, and then I think that kind of leads you to really recognizing there's so many people who also care about this, like very wholeheartedly. Um, and there are so many activists that I can look up to who have dedicated their lives to this fight. Um, and 
they care about it just as passionately as I do, maybe even more. So recognizing that, um, really, really, you are not alone when it comes to anything, um, environmental or yeah, caring about environmentalism. And, um, then I think definitely like feel your feelings and don't like try to bottle them up or block them up. Just like be a good, emotionally healthy person, like prioritize your mental health. Um, that is like incredibly important. Um, I think another thing is look at your work. I mean, I definitely, I see myself as an activist for the long haul. So I really do try to think about, okay, is this work sustainable for me? Is this work making me excited? Is this work that I see myself doing and not burning out? Um, and uh, so always regaining your sense of center and you're really being very clear about your why and your motivation. Um, that helps as well as, uh, yeah, enjoying the work and really having fun with it and um, enjoying the presence of the people who you do the work with. Uh, that is also can be so uplifting. Um, and for me, activism gives me a sense of meaning, connection, uh, passion, justice. Um, it really fires me up and gets me going in the way that nothing else does. And I genuinely, there's no better feeling uh, for me than uh, sharing space with people who believe um, so passionately in a similar vision for justice that aligns with your vision. Um, that feeling is like electrifying to me. Um, like I just, um, I just like can't help but to smile and like, it's like the just, best of humanity, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and I don't get that anywhere else. I mean, maybe I do, but, um, <laughs> like I genuinely love the work and I can't imagine, um, not doing it. Um, and, oh, I've absolutely been very close to burnout, like, many times, um, which is kind of sad to say for someone who's only 16 years old, um, especially last year. Like, last year, I definitely pushed myself um, too much, but it was the process of learning my limits. But I think because I think about burnout so much, um, it kind of um, helps me prevent it in a way. I'm sure there are a bunch of things you would hope for or wish that someone listening to the podcast or each person listening to the podcast would do after it's over. But is there like one tip you could give for listeners who aren't sure where to start when it comes to specifically environmental activism and kind of getting involved? Maybe people who have been really frightened by everything that they see and hear and kind of just want to turn away. What's something that you would say to them or, or an action that you would suggest? Mm -hmm. I would say um, it is incredibly helpful to find an organization that exists, uh, preferably an organization where you can go in person and share space with other people uh, and then go there with an open mind um, and also a willingness to make a commitment. Um, and I think that is really where the most beautiful action starts is, you know, you join an organization and you make a commitment, you find a role that resonates with you and your interests. Um, and 
you know, it all develops from there. And then you see the potential, you learn more about what resonates with you, what excites you about the work, you learn about what particular issues um, really light that fire within you. Um, and that kind of shapes how you can move forward. And the more, like once you meet some people, um, they know more people and you start to really build those connections. But I think going, finding an organization is an amazing step. There's so many organizations out there. So I would say it's kind of hard not to feel intimidated, but I think start with one with the expectation that you'll learn what fits best with you. Um, and some of the organizations that I can highlight are, I would say, um, for young people, which um, that's kind of how you self-identify, but also Sunrise frames it as like 35 and below kind of identify as young people. Um, but if you're above that, you, uh, you can identify as young at heart and, of course, be an ally to the movement. Um, Sunrise is global um, in the United, I mean, not global, it's in the United States. And I think they're doing some very um exciting work and I think they're a great place to begin I also would say um uh the climate strikes are a really great way to step into the work and just kind of uh get a sense of what the landscape is like where you are um and there are going to be more climate strikes happening on December 6th and particularly in New Jersey that is a great opportunity to get to know some of the leaders from a variety of different organizations um and in New Jersey in particularly, uh, there is this coalition that is being formed of all the big, most of the big environmental groups and also other allied groups from other um, like social movements who are allied in our fight. Uh, and we're pushing Governor Murphy to put in place a fossil fuel moratorium, um, which would just block new fossil fuel infrastructure developments. So I would say um, that's a really great place to begin in New Jersey's with that specific campaign and then finding your place from there. Um, so I'd say that is my recommendation. That's excellent advice. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Do you have time for one more question? Yeah, for sure. Okay. So this is a question that I like to ask most guests at the end of the episode. What is something that you're learning about or growing into right now? Oh, this is a wonderful question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think this fall season has really been about um, learning more, get, deepening my understanding of who I am and kind of uh, really reflecting on my own personal narrative um, and the stories that I tell uh, and what about those narratives um, is, yeah, like just diving into like what is the narrative that I tell people about myself and what about that still resonates with the person who I am today um, and what about it does not fit in with who I am today uh, that I'm still holding on to as a part of my narrative that I tell people. Uh, and that has kind of been sparked by the whole college applications process mm. that's all about who are you and what do you want? And like for the first time, you have to tell us all about yourself and um, you get to have depth, um, <laughs> uh, Whether at, whereas like you're never really um, encouraged to do that kind of exploration. And then all of a sudden it's like now you have to define yourself mm. for who you are. Do you ever feel constricted or 
like there's pressure on you having that activist identity or environmentalist identity or CEO identity or like teen teen CEO identity do you ever feel like I don't know any sort of constriction or like you want to rebel or something <laughs> something um, like that yeah I think I think that there is there are so many connotations around what it means to be an activist, what it means to be a leader, what it means to be a teen activist, um, uh, just like all of these things. There's so many assumptions that go along with that. And I really resist some of those things because um, like so, they're such a, it's so pervasive in the culture of activism, of like being a very intense person and burning out and um, not being very thoughtful, I would say, or introspective and being very action oriented. And especially for leadership um, and especially like youth leadership, I think there are so many associations that we make around like being assertive or um, being, uh, I guess like, like, confident um being like knowing the answers and I kind of like question and reject all those things because um I really see myself as like a person first and a person who's really growing into herself and a person who's still questioning everything around me um questioning all of my you know everything I believe all of the values uh even the activist values and I'm definitely a very thoughtful and like reflective person, which sometimes uh, does not fit into the world of activism, but it also very much should. And so I embrace the identities um, as a way of showcasing how much diversity and depth exists within those labels. That's really beautifully said and very <laughs> admirable. And what I think is so cool about it is that if there's one thing we know from studying like ecology, it's that diversity is a really good, healthy thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like we Absolutely. need diversity um, to grow and thrive and evolve and all of that. So I think you're right. I think instead of being pigeonholed, it's important to like stay true to yourself and check in with yourself and, and, stay true to the things that you do value while being open and curious and learning and asking questions and being willing to grow and change, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you can live a good life while still uh, working to create a better world. I don't think those two things contradict each other. I think they complement each other and they need to go hand in hand. So I think really embracing the journey of like, you know, self-discovery and um, and seeing that as, you know, that's not antithetical to my activist work. It's not taking away from that. Um, it's deepening my activist work. It's helping me connect to people. Um, it's helping me tell my story in a more authentic way. Um, and so, yeah, I really see, uh, they really are very deeply interconnected for me. And, you know, I think what's really important about that is that that's a far more inspiring message, I think, for people who are kind of on the fence or who have not been interested in and not, you know, not everyone necessarily has to be like an activist, but absolutely more people could be more involved. And um, I think it's it's scary when when you think, oh, I would have to give my entire life. I would have to totally let myself be burnt out and all of these things like it's actually very inspiring and motivating to hear you say, I believe, you know, I can live 
a healthy life and also do this work. And I, I think that that message could motivate more people to get more involved. Um, so I think that's really important. You kind of always live in that contradiction. Um, or sometimes there is, sometimes there's a tension that is put in place between them. But you can um, work to bridge those things. And I think that's really exciting. And I also think that so many, so many, so many, much of the time, the individual um, naturally leads you to the institutional, just based off your like what you've seen, what you feel, and what feels right to you. So. Um, like, you know, if you're, you're really trying to live a good life, um, I think that kind of um, shows up in, like, your desire to uh, act like a, in a more just way, even in the way you interact with other people and the systems that you choose to participate in. Um, so, and that really lends itself. And then also doing the, the activist institutional kind of work really leads you to start questioning your own role within that and to get to the individual level. So I think they really do lead each other to each other um, if you let it. Thank you so much. I, I'm so um, just in awe <laughs> of your, uh, you're just very wise beyond your years. <laughs> and um, I'm grateful for the work that you're doing and grateful for the time you've given to be on the podcast and yeah, I so appreciate you and just thank you. <laughs> thank you. Uh, no, this is really an amazing experience and I loved it. I love to talk. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was awesome. And I've always wanted to be on a podcast. <laughs> Yay, you could check it off the bucket exactly. list. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Thank you so much for listening to the Perennials podcast. I'm Victoria Russell. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and leave a review on iTunes. It really helps other people to find the show. You can follow along on Instagram at perennialspodcast, and feel free to send me an email at perennialspodcast at gmail.com. The song you're hearing now is I Orbit a Moon by Paul Finn.